Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 1516 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Tuesday, uh, and this is going to be a Just Jack podcast. I'm going to be talking to you today about the Nine Mile Farmstead. What's next? What are we going to be doing uh, with a small farmstead business this year. Uh, today, my wife and I set out with our new baby ducklings the way that we do every morning during this, this part of the brooding process. And we kind of looked around, and we realized that we had kind of turned a corner with the business. That Like, okay, the chickens are definitely out the door. We've got some really cool customers. We could have as many customers as we want. In fact, we can't run enough ducks here that I think we would ever run out of the ability to sell duck eggs uh, at a premium. At probably, you know, seven bucks a dozen is where we think our final pricing is going to end up after testing the market. And that we had done all this work over the past couple of years, and there's still some places to fill some stuff in, but, like, this was going to be a big transformation year, too. Like, the property would look very different this summer than it has for the last two. And as we, we sat there and we talked about it, we took a walk around and decided it was maybe a good idea to update you guys with where we're going with this. Because the motivation that started the whole thing, uh, to take this just from a place that we would have for ourselves to actually doing something with it, you know, for profit's sake was two things. Support the local food movement, uh, because it's important to us and to demonstrate to you guys that it could be done. And we've kind of really just scratched the surface and found out how much is really available. So I want to share with you what we've learned so far and where we're going and what we plan on doing in the next six months, not in the you know long-term 20 years from now uh, timeline, but over the next six months through this summer. Before I do that, let us take care of our sponsors. They do much to take care of you by helping to make sure the show's for you here Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one. Sawtooth Tactical, all the stuff you need to live the tactical lifestyle, you will find it where? Sawtooth Tactical, I mean tactical. It's called Sawtooth because they're nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Veteran-owned and veteran-operated. If it's tactical, they have it. Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, everything you can think of, you'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical, located at sawtac.com. Remember, they do a discount for members of the Support Brigade, so if you're ordering something tactical... Get your discount, log into the MSB, go to benefits, and find the discount code for Sawtooth. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. There's a triangle of gun operator efficiency. You, the operator, and yes, the weapon. But you and a good weapon and no ammo equals a really skilled guy with an expensive club or barter item. Guns with no ammo are clubs or some way to get yourself killed. That's what they are. And guns with ammo, then they can fulfill their function. And you need the ammo not just in a critical situation, whether it's to save a life or put food on the table. You need the ammo to actually train with live ammo with your weapon. That means lots of ammo. That means ammo in dun-dun-dun bulk. And where do I get my ammo in bulk? I get it at bulk ammo. When you see their pricing and experience their lightning-fast shipping, you probably will too. They also do a discount for members of the MSB, so check the benefits section. What's this MSB thing? Members Support Brigade for those that are new to the show. Here's what I did. At the beginning of the show, I thought, how am I going to make a living doing this? And I decided, well, if I took all of the sponsors that I had accumulated and, and had a little bit of money coming in from, 
and approached them and said, would you like access to my best customers for a discount? They might say yes. So I negotiated those discounts. Then I went out and I found about 50 other companies that I've gotten discounts for. So most sponsors and all these other companies that sell stuff you're probably buying anyway provide discounts. Some of the discounts more than pay for a year of membership by themselves. Then I got a whole bunch of ebooks I negotiated to be able to distribute for free, almost $200 worth, put them in there for free, and then I put premium content in there for free. And then I sell that for 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month, your choice. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, Or an active duty or prior service first responder. That would be EMT, paramedic, firefighter. All those do qualify for a discount. Just email me before, not after you join. Service discount TSPC in the subject line. And I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members of the MSB banner as you could sign up right there. Next up today, <clears throat> I want to uh, give you the Bob Wells plant of the week every week on Tuesday. We have a plant of the week from Bob Wells Nursery, another discount provider to the MSB, by the way, about cool plants that you can grow where you live that actually will provide food for you and your family. Today we have a cherry, but we have a cherry for people like me in the south where it gets really hot and it doesn't get that cold. We don't have that many chilling hours. In fact, we have two plants of the week, a bonus this week. We have mini royal and royal Lee cherries. They're adaptable from zone 7 to 9. If you live in the south and have always wanted to grow cherries, then these are the trees for you. You need to plant one of each for pollination. They only require 450 chill hours. Now, chill hour is not below freezing hours. It's, it's hours, total hours for the winter below 45 degrees. So that's what they need to be able to bud out and produce cherries for you. Mini Royal is a medium-sized, firm, flavorful red cherry that's mainly used for a pollinator for Royal Lee, and it's very productive. The Royal Lee is a heart-shaped cherry that's also early season favorite, prized for its high productivity and excellent flavor. You can find these plants and more at bombwellsnursery.com. If it's anything edible, fruit, berry, nut trees, and any other hard-to-find specialty trees, you'll find it at bombwellsnursery.com. Uh, they are a great supporter of this show, guys. They have donated a lot of plants to my farmstead. Uh, they have worked really hard to put together a discount program for members of the Support Brigade. And, uh, you know, they every week they put together those plant of the week and, sh and get it on over to me so that I can include it for you. They're great guys, and they ask for feedback. Right now, I owe them. Uh, a lot of you guys have been asking them for uh, nitrogen fixtures, and I, I need to get back uh, to those guys with uh, my list of favorite nitrogen fixtures. So they're actually going to start stocking some of the nitrogen-fixing perennials just because you guys want them. Uh, not because their other customers want them, but because this audience is asking them for them. Uh, that is a great supporter. So the next time you need plants, and it is that time of year to be ordering your plants, BobWellsNursery.com. And, hey, join the MSB and get 10% off. Uh, you know, those of you putting a lot of plants in, like we're going to talk about somewhat today, that one benefit pays for itself right there. Anyway, last thing before we get into what are we going to do at the Nine Mile Farmstead is the history episode, year 1516. This one's hard. There's a, there's a beer topic in here. There's a welfare topic in here. And there's a guy mocking communism in here. How the heck is Jack supposed to pick one of those? I love beer. Uh, I, I love, you know, the story of, of like when welfare was actually something that was done by people that chose to provide it. And I love mocking communists. So how am I to pick? I'll pick the one in the middle. 
Uh, so we have the beginning of welfare housing about a dude named Count Jacob Fugger. We have a guy mocking communism, I'll tell you about in a second. We have price controls and the beer purity laws. The one in the middle, Sir Thomas More mocks communism, but no one gets the joke. <laughs> Utopia is published this year in Belgium. It's official account of the island kingdom of Utopia, nowhere near the British Isles at all. But some place in the New World, you see. And Sir Thomas More is not advising King Henry VIII on how to run a kingdom any better. Oh no, that would be insane. No, for the most part, Utopia is promoting what we would call communism in the modern day. But these beliefs go against most of what Sir Thomas More holds dear as a Catholic. Therefore, Utopia must be mocking many of the solutions offered by the intellectuals of his day, and coincidentally of the modern day as well. Yet the Soviet Union will praise more for Utopia, illustrating once again that intellectuals can't recognize a slam, even when it hits them between the eyes. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these together for us. Frankly, the story of Utopia sounds like an unbashed communist propaganda. Gold is bad, there is no private property, yet each household has two slaves. Huh? Thus proving that in any perfect world created by intellectuals, the lessers, the lessers must suffer to make th good things happen for the betters. Utopia will not be published in England until several years after Sir Thomas More is beheaded for upholding his principles as a Catholic and refusing to attend the coronation of Anne Borland because he believed King Henry VIII was engaged in bigotry. Imagine that. You know, what, what I find interesting is that in the Utopia story, everybody had two slaves. You might find that to be just shocking. It's shocking. Who knows what that, what Christmas movie that's from. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. Because I understand the mentality of people at the time. I don't say I approve of it, I understand it. Now, here's what I mean. So, right now, a possession that you might have, that you might hold as something nice to have, would be something like a house, or a car, or a smartphone, right? Or a piece of property, okay? Well, at the time, a slave was something that was simply viewed as something nice to have by those that had the means, Slaves were just property. And yet in a world where there was no property, this fictitious world of utopia, still one person could be the property of others. See, the thing about communism and the, the goals of communism is not for there to be no property. It is simply for the state to be the holder of the property and choose which property you're allowed to control for whatever period of time in whatever way the state decides. In fact... Communism is not at all the disownership of property. It is the centralized ownership by a government proposing to act on behalf of the people that it actually controls with the threat of violence through the use of force at the point of a gun or a sword or the blunt end of a boot. Sounds familiar. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Anyway, my take by Jack Spierko on the year 1516 and Sir Thomas More and the story of the island of Utopia. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, Nine Mile Farm. That's what we call our home. And uh, some people have pointed out that if you look really hard, you can find my address. Well, if you go to ninemile.farm, 
you see that we have a farm and we have customers that come here, so yeah, gee, you can find us. Uh, we don't go screaming from the rooftops, hey, here we are, but, you know, in this day and age, unless you own property through a corporation or something like that, people can find where you are anyway. I'm not that kind of prepper. If you come here and you mean me harm, it's probably the wrong place to show up at. I'll leave it at that. Um, in the end, I'm more concerned about a random person trying to burglarize my property or home off the street than somebody out of this audience. Uh, just a little lesson for those of you that maybe are a little bit too much of the uh, foil hat conspiracy theorists uh, world. Anyway, Nine Mile Farm is who we are because the, the road we live on is called Nine Mile. So we are the farm on Nine Mile Road. And we put that together one day when we decided, hey, look, what we need to do here is we tell people all the time, hey, you can have a business of your own. You can do a blog, you can do this, but one of the businesses you could do as a homesteader, farmsteader, permaculturist would be selling the production of your land. And that if we were telling people that, we might want to actually demonstrate it. And, uh, you know, what I've always said uh, is one of my favorite sayings is demonstrate to emulate. So whatever you want to see others do, you do it first. Lead from in front, not from behind. Pull people with you. Lead people from the front. Don't push them from the rear. And so we decided, well, why don't we do that? And Dorothy was kind of kicking around the idea, like, do I want to go back to work? And I'm like, no, you don't. You were miserable. I wasn't always miserable. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you were. You know, you tend to always wax nostalgic toward things you don't do anymore. But I'm like, you, I'm like, I can't afford for you to go to work, honestly. The work you do for me is worth more to me than the money you would get paid in a, in a job at this point. And, but she wanted some of her own. So I'm like, well, we could do this thing with the ducks and the chickens and the eggs and a little bit of a plant business and maybe do some compost tea and stuff like that. And we kind of slowly fell into how we wanted to do it. And along the way, we realized, okay, so what we really need is we need some way to build a customer base. And then we can stack things into that customer base. Once we have, you know, 50, 60 people who regularly do business with us, say once a month, then what we can do is we can do things like she wants to learn how to make candles, and we can say, hey, these are available. And we can just have this little side business for her that she can run and have something that's her own, that's not mine. Because I think it's important for people to have something they feel like is theirs. So we thought, well, a great way to do that, since we have chickens anyway, is we'll just ramp up the number of chickens and we'll start selling chicken eggs because everybody and their mother buys eggs. And you look at the market and they're, you know, three bucks a dozen for crappy eggs from a factory. You should be able to get four or five bucks easy. Maybe raise the price over time after we test the market. And so we, we got a bunch of chickens. Dorothy also wanted ducks. And we didn't really even think about ducks as a business honestly, at all. It was like, they're cool, they quack, they play around, and the entire f fact that we have ducks in the quantity we do today is because of Dorothy. Uh, one day when she said, I want more ducks, and I said, well, how many do you want? Being a plucky woman, she goes, 22, as just a joke. And of course, I ordered exactly 22 ducks. So with the ducks we already had, we ended up with close to 30. And then as we were building up the chicken population, something started to happen. We really, and to be honest, we never really thought about it. All of a sudden, ducks started popping eggs out of their ass. And we went, oh yeah, ducks lay eggs too. So then Jack takes a duck egg, cracks it open, drops it into a cast iron skillet with a little bit of bacon grease in there, makes himself up an over-medium egg like he likes, looks at the yolk and goes, good God, that's golden, 
eats it and goes, holy crap, this is the best egg I've ever eaten in my life. This is to my chicken eggs what my chicken eggs are to store-bought eggs. It's, it's that second level of improvement. This is the most fantastic egg I've ever eaten. Scrambled some up and went, yeah, they're good, but they're not that much different. But oh my God, when it's a fried egg, this is a quality that just doesn't come out of a chicken's butt. It only comes from a duck's butt. So I thought, well, we'll just try to build up now. There's going to be this resistance to duck eggs. There's not really a market for it, whatever. So we put together the website, 9mile.farm, and we started marketing. And we even said on Craigslist, we put two little ads on Craigslist, which we're not even running now because we can't keep up with customers. If you will buy a dozen chicken eggs, uh, we'll give you a half. We said, I think we said two dozen chicken eggs or more. We'll give you a half a dozen duck eggs to try. We started getting the phone ringing off the hook for people that just wanted duck eggs. And the people that did try duck eggs came back and said, I don't want chicken eggs, I want duck eggs. Duck, 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 duck. And we started to realize something. There's not a lot of options if you want duck eggs in Dallas-Fort Worth. And we are a conglomerated metroplex is the way to think of Dallas-Fort Worth. It's like Minneapolis-St. Paul type of thing, Twin Cities type thing. Uh, though people in Dallas will get really... Well, they won't really care, but people in Fort Worth will get really pissed if you call Dallas a Twin City. Fort Worthers seem to see themselves a lot different than Dallasites, right? But the Fort Worth-Dallas metro mess is about 6.2 million people, and there just ain't that many options for duck eggs. And so then we discovered this whole market of people, which we're barely scratching, that are like, I'm allergic to chicken eggs, or my kids are allergic to chicken eggs. So there's a quality market that just likes the better quality. There's a niche market that just, it's cool. And then there's a whole chicken allergy market. And we're seeing 1% of this market because we don't want to see anymore. I don't have the eggs for 2% of this market. So with all of this, we started looking at, okay, how big of an asset are the ducks to the property? And in every way that we measured what the ducks do, the ducks' intrinsic behaviors on the property, they were an asset. They don't fly over fences. They produce a superior meat product. They produce a superior egg product. And though they'll go through a garden and root around, you only have to fence them out of the things that really they would like, like young lettuce and stuff like that. They're going to eat the hell out of that. Right, so But you can buy a pound of lettuce seed pretty cheap and grow it for them and let them have all they want and just fence them out of the little low fence out of the area that you don't want them in. So when we did all that, we're like, okay, we like the ducks better. They do better for our property. They manure well. And then one day I had some straw for their, their, their holding area, and I threw it in there, and usually a few of the Houdini chickens get out and go where they're not supposed to go, and when they see the straw, they run over and they scratch it all up. Well, I had done a pretty good job of pinning the Houdini chickens' wings back, so to speak, and they weren't out that day. So then the ducks are in there rooting around in the straw, spreading the straw out. Then Jeff Lawton told me, yeah, ducks, ducks will spread manure, because they like to root through it and see what's going on, so they'll take care of your neighbor's horse manure. Okay, the chickens just lost their last asset. Like, there's no, so I can get less for the eggs. I have to compete with a bunch more people. And when the chickens get out, they dig holes and everything. They destroy everything. The chickens are on, let's face it, they're on the shit list right now. They really are. Uh, I sold off 17 chickens this past week. 
Uh, our feed bill's going down. You know, now we're in a new challenge that I'll get to in a second. But we just decided that the ducks equaled dollars. And the chickens e equaled maybe break even. And we could probably make the chickens profitable, but at a lot more effort and a lot more competition of this in interesting vertical of ducks. And again, we also look at it, you know, long term, if we can find a processor, which I might have, um, there's a meat business component there. That it's a much more premium product. A, a pasture duck sells for 30, 40 bucks or more. And they grow faster and they're less work if you do things certain ways. So, and use certain breeds for that purpose, not the breeds that we're using for eggs. So we just realized that we went from, you know, this, this group of ducks that were like an interesting pet to a dollar production machine. Now it's not going to get you rich, but we've run some numbers. And if we eventually push up to about a hundred layers, and that's not that many for the property we have. We can easily use a three panic system that I'll talk about later and, and do quite well. And, you know, if I said we were going to put uh, a miniature beef cow on three acres and run it through paddocks, no one would say, oh, that's, that's excessive. Well, the average layer hen that we have weighs about four and a half pounds. When we go to the, you know, specifically a duck that's designed as a layer, four and a half to five and a half pounds. So a hundred of them is a biomass of 450 to 550 pounds. So equivalent, they're a single cow. Or, you know, they're smaller than a single horse. So they're, they're not that many. And with that amount of ducks, we can turn $1,500, $1,600 a month just in duck egg profit without a lot of effort. And that's a good core. That's not going to earn you a living. But for a side business, it's damn good. And for a core component to build a farmstead business, it's awesome. And it allows you then to build that customer base that we wanted to do with chicken eggs. With people who, I don't want to put this the wrong way, but in some ways are a little bit more interesting to work with. Because they know, when you, when you get a duck egg customer, they tend to know what they want. And there's a reason they want it. And they have a story behind it. And this is where I want to give you a business principle today that seems unrelated to the stuff I'm talking about, but it's completely related to any business as you begin to develop a customer base. When I was a young man, I worked for a company called Garrettcom. Now, these are not the people that build metal detectors that you see in, in stores. Uh, Garrettcom is an industrial Ethernet hardware company. It builds carrier-class Ethernet, so stuff that, that phone carriers used to use back in the day uh, for intelligent traffic systems, for industrial automation, stuff like that. And I sat down with this guy, Forrest Baker, who was uh, kind of a bigwig in the company when I was out there for my initial training. And he said, I want you to know something that nobody in this office would want me to tell you. And we were out for a beer after hours. And he goes, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because this is the truth. He goes, 95% of what you're learning during these two weeks while you're here is bullshit. Uh, it's very technical. You're listening to programmers and, and all this technical shit. And you don't need to know any of it. And you probably know more about sales than, than I do, or you wouldn't have been given the job you were given. What you actually need to know is how all of this technical bullshit that you're being taught this week, that you're going to retain 10% of, uh, how that 10% pertains to your customers' wants and needs. So you have a pretty good book of business to start with. Even though they're not buying much, the people are there and they'll talk to you. 
What you need to do is set meetings with all of the people that, that you have contacts with from yourself and from us and make your first rounds through and, and do a lot of listening and a little bit of talking. Don't try to sell them. Understand them. Your customers will train you. And then you can piece together what we have into the solutions that serve them. And if you do that, your customers will train you at a level that will make you realize you're wasting two weeks of your life right now. But it's how the company works, so you're going to be here. You might as well drink beer with me after hours. That was his only advice that he ever gave me, ever, for the entire time I worked for that company. It's some of the best advice I was ever given about sales, business, and marketing by anyone ever. And it's certainly the reason I was successful in that position. By the way, he ended it with, and if you don't do this, you probably won't sell anything. And if you don't sell anything in six months, and when they say anything, they mean a lot of stuff, like make your number, you'll be fired. So trust me, this is the way to go. And uh, he was right. And that's how this type of business works, too. You might think there's not a big correlation between selling high-end Ethernet hardware to somebody like Alcatel or Lucent and selling an egg to a guy named Tom down the road from you. But if you're building actually a multi-layered business where I'm going to make follow-up products and additional opportunities available, and I'm going to you know, put together maybe some sort of a pick-your-own at some point or a plant business or whatever, it's exactly the same. What we have that no farmer's market really can have, because there's too much hustle and bustle, that no supermarket could ever hope to have, that no distribution channel can generally have, is that we have individual customers that actually drive their car to our front door. They come to us, and when we sell them the eggs, they want to tell us why they're here. They want to tell us what they're looking for. They want to tell us about their lives. And we, we can do things like, yeah, we're thinking about doing this. And they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I'd want to do that. Or, yeah, that's interesting. And you know what that's interesting means? That means I'm not buying it. And we have this living, breathing entity forming around Nine Mile Farmstead that basically will tell us, this is what we'll take from you if you produce it. And we can throw things out. Like we were thinking of like, like 10 bucks a plant for those. Oh, I buy four. Okay, that's 40 bucks. And, and, and that comes from the ducks. So I'm not saying go out and start a duck business. What I'm saying is whatever business you do, you want a core that can allow you to engage with your clientele to build it that way. That can be done with a nursery business. That can be done with all kinds of things. Um, I want to tell you where we're at right now, though. Like, So we have this pretty good-sized group of ducks, but you know we're producing four. I think we have 14 eggs today. We might get one or two more. Who knows? Um, we have 50 dedicated layers, and these are crank them out layer ducks, Metzer, Metzer hybrids. And, but we're looking at those birds laying like the end of June. It's a long time till the end of June. And right now we have this huge risk, right? I mean, if something happens to those birds, at this point we're set back three weeks. And you're looking at 21 to 24 weeks to get in production with a duck for eggs. So that's a big setback. On the other hand, we only want to ramp up because what's going to happen is all 50 of these birds are going to start popping eggs out about the same time. So we're going to go from a small production to a good-sized, moderate production. So doing 100 of them be a lot more issue with brooding and stuff like that. Plus, it all comes at once. So what we're thinking is like end of March, beginning of April, order another 
25 ducks from Metzer, maybe the golden hybrids this time, bring them in, and that'll be a time of year where within one week we can have them outside in the brooder and out of the house and out of stinking and stuff like that. And then hopefully we can expand our flock as necessary by using our Muscovy ducks to do the brooding for us. And if we do anything beyond that, if we do meat birds or something like that, you know, then we'll do something like jumbo peckins. Uh, because you're looking at 11 weeks and you're, you're processing meat. Because raising these young birds is a little tough. Because there is the risk of one disease getting in there and wiping everybody out. And you want to do everything natural? Well, that's something that can happen. Or we're doing what we can to keep predators away. But, you know, last year a rat got in our brooder. And we had 30, 30 chicks one day. And one chick the next. And he, the, 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 the prick didn't even eat them. He just killed them all. I think he ate half of one. And the rest of them were just laying there with holes not in them. You know, when I caught that rat in the glue trap, I'm, I, I'm not sad to say that I smacked the crap out of it with a rubber mallet. Um, didn't, didn't have any sympathy for him after that happened. But that's an example of something that can go wrong. And you've, you've got to make this investment in these animals. And that's why when somebody says something to me like, $7 a dozen? I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Because remember what I said to the small producer on the feedback show about how to price your, your stuff? For the small producer, if the money isn't sufficient to make me not want to put the product in my belly, and I have a, 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 the ability to consume the product, like I'm not in so much surplus I don't know what to do with it, I'm going to put it in my belly. Now let me tell you an egg breakfast that we've come on to, and I hate to admit eating bread, but it's the way to make this. You take a piece of bread, and a thick piece of, of hand-cut sourdough would be beautiful for this. You put butter on both sides, you heat up a cast iron skillet, and you toast both sides of that bread like you're making a grilled cheese sandwich. You thin-slice Gouda cheese. And as soon as the bread comes out of the skillet, you put it hot side up and set the thin sliced Gouda cheese on it so it'll start to melt into the bread. Then you drop a single duck egg into that skillet and you cook it over easy to over medium, your choice. And you put a couple pieces of, of bacon that are already cooked. We usually do pre-cooked bacon in the morning so that we don't have to sit there and fry bacon. A couple pieces to warm to the side of that. Take that over easy duck egg and set it on top of the Gouda cheese. Hot egg melts it further. And then put the bacon to the side. And you cut into that egg and let that thick, golden, delicious, beautiful, thick, viscous yolk coat that bread. And it is phenomenal. And we now have a chef as a customer. I'm afraid to tell him this. He's buying two dozen uh, a week. And we can't really sell him anymore and, and, and keep our other people happy. I am afraid of what would happen to demand that I can't meet if that were to sit down in his be set down in his restaurant in front of his customers. Because it's that freaking good. And this is one of those things like, how did you discover that? I cooked it because I was actually doing it. And that's another lesson. I don't care what your business is. You need to be doing it. Because when you do it, you experience things like your customer will. So we have a chef as a customer now, 
And I may have found a processor for our birds. Jason, my bee mentor, and I've got Dorothy calling them to find out for me, sent me an email that basically said there's a processor down in Mansfield that may uh, be willing to do chickens and ducks for you. Uh, called Hayes Farm. So if you're in the area, Hayes Farm might be somebody to check out in Mansfield, Texas. I hope so. Because uh, then I probably would, yeah, these chickens are going to go away. But I would probably build a good meat chicken tractor system, and I'd probably run 100 birds a year, 100 Cornish cross birds, maybe two runs of 100, and put 50 into my own freezer and what have you, and sell 50 to 150 birds. And I, I can tell you right now, I know we can do that. Now, again, you're not going to retire off this, but instead of you know a dozen birds like the guy that called in and asked about, where like I'm going to sell them for whatever makes me not want to put them in my belly, I think we can make about $15 a bird. And I think we can either have the birds sold before they get here, maybe not taking the money for them, but know there's somebody, I want three, I want four, I want six, that type of thing pre-ordered on a waiting list, and anybody that backs off, that creates a surplus, can be sold to anybody else. We can know exactly how many to put into a run before we even start with a $15 profit and let somebody else do the processing. And you do $150, you sell that way, $2,200. That's profit. Okay, That's not gross. That's a profit. And that's the chickens. I think we can sell ducks for about $35 a piece. And I can raise them for the same price as I can raise chickens for. So I can make more like 22, 23 bucks a bird off of those. Now there's another couple $3,000. It starts to add up. It starts to be significant without doing that much. Raising a hundred birds is not that hard, especially if you don't have to process them. So that's all going to revolve around whether or not I've actually found a processor or not. Now if I found a processor, and they're not USDA, so I can't use them and then resell. And I'm not sure how that legality works here in Texas. I'll have to find out, cross that bridge when I come to it. It still might be the case that I might raise myself 50 meat birds, 50 you know jumbo peckins, and then you know maybe in the fall 50 Cornish cross chickens, and raise myself 100 birds and put that food on my plate like I talked about for far less than I would buy it in the store, at least to buy it at that quality and know the quality of that animal's life, etc., so we're kind of thinking that way too, but we really want to stick mostly with the egg-based business and things that don't have a shelf life, so to speak, other than the egg. So a plant, you don't buy it today, it'll be bigger next week, I might get more money for it, that type of thing. Um, we also know we need to move into a paddock shift system. Now those of you that have been following us raising these 50 uh, egg, egg ducks, um, you, you've seen the beginnings of our paddock shift system, and we thought about like all different types of ways to do this, and I decided, well, what if we just made it as simple as possible? You have three acres, dummy. One acre's already fenced. What if you just cut the other two acres in half? And I said to myself, what's the easiest way to do that? And it's basically take one cross fence and run a fence from it to the house, take the other fence on the other property boundary and run a fence from that fence to the side of your garage. And that pretty much bisects the property into, into three properties. Well, when I really thought about doing that, and I also decided the chickens are out, and I realized like this, this influx of more ducks, the ducks are going to need more than the 8x8 shed for their base of operations. They need the big, giant chicken house, uh, chicken palace. And uh, then, you know, if they're there, 
they're kind of central. And with a little extra fencing, I'll make this big holding area. So at night when I want to protect it for predators, they can go in there. I've got power there. I have to run water there. Right now there's a hose laying on the ground, so there is water there. But I need to run water in the ground there anyway. So I have power and water. I can keep them watered. I can put up a hot wire around their holding area to give them additional predator protection. And then I can set it up to where I open one gate, they go to paddock one. I open a different gate, they go to paddock two. I open a third gate, they go to paddock three. Oh, and the geese's holding area is right in the same area. So now I'll just have geese and ducks. No more chickens to worry about. Everybody's in the same location. So as far as providing them with food and water and daily maintenance and putting them to bed at night, I've got them all in one location. Awesome. What made this even easier was the fact that I need a two and a half, three foot high fence for ducks. I don't need a five, six foot fence. I don't need electro netting. I don't leave any of that. All I need is a barrier that makes them like, oh crap, I can't go here. I'm going to go over here instead. So this whole thing's kind of really fit together. And the reason I, I, I've explained it all this lengthy to you is I have been practicing permaculture for five and a half, six years now. I've had multiple design courses. I've sought as a consultant. And yet this property has taken this much living, observing, interacting to come up with something that this this simple and therefore elegant. And the more you simplify things, the more elegant they become. I think we're seeing this even like you can go from permaculture to the world of firearms, but even in ARs. I think you're starting to see people move towards simplified AR-15s. Less stuff. Because the elegance of the design is the the in the simplicity of the design. And I think that that's something that we can learn from permaculture, simplicity. Let's not make anything more complicated than it has to be. And then what do you want that to do for you? So my biggest concern up till now has been, well, how the hell do I fence this place? Uh, other than calling up a fencing company and paying them a small fortune, because they don't want to do it any more than I do. Because as I've said before, I have this limestone rock subsoil. It's not subsoil. I have limestone rock under my dirt is the way to look at it. There are places that you might dig a foot, foot and a half deep before you hit that rock. Uh, those places are one spot down at the lowest point on the land where all the topsoil eroded to before anybody did anything here to prevent it. The majority of the property is anywhere from six to eight inches. And some places, including one place that I really needed to put a fence to make this all work, the dirt is two to four inches deep. Now, if you know anything about fencing, if you drive a fence post two inches in the ground, it doesn't stand up, let alone hold up a fence. It just doesn't work. So what I came up with is, I, since I only need three-foot fencing, I went out and got the T-posts that are really for like two-foot fencing and cinder blocks, which we had in abundance here because the old homeowner seemed to use a cinder block for everything, and some bags of sackcrete. And we took a string and we tied it between the points we wanted the fence to go to keep everything in a straight line. We spaced the cinder blocks eight feet apart. We took the the uh, T-posts and we drove them into the ground two to four inches, however far they would go, at least until the paddle, which usually drive into the ground, was into the cinder block. And to tell you how bad it was, I'd say four of the 20 
T-post, we couldn't even get it in the ground far enough for the paddle to be inside the center block. It's actually sitting up above the center block, you know, maybe an inch, half inch, depending on which one they are. And then we filled in the center blocks with sacrete and let them set. And then we run, we're, and I'm doing this now, we're running the fencing, the three-foot-high red brand uh, welded galvanized fencing, two-by-four openings, using those poles. Really, really simple. And without those center blocks, what we're talking about is renting like an air compressor and a jackhammer. And it just doesn't seem worth doing that way. We're going to put in some nice gates. So and we'll put it, we'll, we'll, you know, I'll do whatever I have to do to get a couple posts in the ground enough to put in some nice looking gates and some nice looking, you know, like black iron fencing where it goes up and joins the, the house or the garage. And then we have this temporary three-foot red brand fencing. And as we do that, we'll go in and we'll put irrigation lines following the fence line. We're going to put in hedgerows, uh, things like either Rosa Ragusa. My wife's talked about maybe in the one one fence line. Instead of doing something edible, put in something like Rose of Sharon because we know it grows really good here. It attracts hummingbirds like Get Out. It's beautiful. It grows fast. And we can buy a bunch of it cheap and get it in the ground and, and, you know, in a few years, take that metal fencing away. So that's all kind of just followed in, in place, but it was finding that simple, cheap solution. Temporary fencing, a dollar a foot roughly to put in, surplus cinder blocks and concrete. And when those fences have done their duty and we have the hedgerows in place and we leave small pieces of fencing in place to do some connections where you're worried about not having enough sunlight to keep the hedgerow thick or whatever and have a gate and what have you. Once that's done, then that stuff can just be pulled up and repurposed. Maybe I want to cut my one-acre west pasture paddock in half. Really easy to do at that point. Uh, or maybe donate it to somebody in the area who has a similar project they want to take on. So by making the infrastructure portable for the type of infrastructure it is, it can be repurposed and reused elsewhere. My long-term goal is there's three acres to my west that's really got a bunch of junk laying on stuff, and hopefully, you know, the guy I'll figure out it's not worth what he thinks it is, or, you know, I hate to say it, but maybe he'll pass on and his heirs will want to get rid of it, because I'll pay more for that piece of land than anybody else in Tarrant County, because it means more to me, because it adjoins my land. I want to own that. It could be used on that piece of property to begin developing it. There's a neighbor behind me that's got six acres. I, I really would like to buy half of his property from him. Uh, that would give me nine. That's another place that could be used. Or there's all types of opportunities that could come up in the future where I could just take that infrastructure, roll it up, put it in the back of a pickup truck, and there's 200 feet of portable fencing that will fence in at least ducks and dogs sitting right there unless your dog's really a hyper dog that will you know, jump that fence. So that all came from that one thought. Throw a cinder block on the ground, stick a pipe in it. Um, next, we are really planning on doing a lot with plant propagation. Um, almost every customer we, we have for the duck eggs at least wants, you know, a backyard garden and things like that. And I'm not about selling annuals. It's, it's too competitive. They're too low priced. There's too much work. But with perennials, you can, you know, sell plants for 20, 30 bucks a plant uh, when you're selling a person one plant. And you have enough margin to work with where when somebody says, well, I want to buy 30 plants, you can cut them a deal. So we're putting in, we've already put in two 4x8 beds 
uh, for plant propagation. And I'm going to put two more in. I'm going to try to get those in before Nick gets here because uh, he's coming on the 21st to 22nd. I put out an announcement today. We're doing a, a, a special training call for all members of the, the plant propagation class. And we're we'll do some uh, video on the property as well. That'll all be bonus video made available to to people that have taken that class. But I might as well, while the experts here, get him to configure all my timers and everything for me. Somebody try to put in those two additional beds. Well, with those four beds, we can produce tens of thousands of trees and plants. And I don't really need to produce that many. But my view is that we can take this as a local business, and we can ship plants. Plants are easy to ship. You, you bundle them up right. You put them in a in a in a box, and you send them to wherever they're going to go. And we have the Perma Ethos property. We have work that we're doing with a client in Arkansas now. We'll be doing more. I have this entire audience of people that might want certain things that I can produce, and I can produce them at a, at a, a low enough cost that I can sell way under with a lot of specialized things. Uh, you know, your, your nurseries and things like that, your big box nurseries and what have you. And there's, again, there's 6.2 million people here. There, there's, there's markets for all of this stuff. And the key is that you can identify certain things that you're producing that instead of competing with Lowe's or Home Depot or Callaway's Nursery or Mike's Nursery or whatever, it's just like, well, they don't have this. You can't find comfrey at Lowe's and Home Depot. Comfrey. One of the easiest things in the world to propagate. And, and you, if you have a business you're developing, then you start realizing there's opportunities. Like you could go to eBay and buy a hundred comfrey roots for, you know, not very much money. And this isn't a good time of year to price it because a lot of people can't dig it right now because the ground's frozen. But like I'm on eBay right now, 25 plants for $19.99. So even if I didn't have enough to meet my customers' demands from my own production of comfrey, what I could do is say, well, we'll have comfrey in June. Put your orders in now. Um, $3 a, $3 a cutting. And have a few, you know, on display, you put the cutting around, this is what it looks like a year later. However many I can't sell, I can just source and, and reprice and, and resell. Again, this is, you know, kind of a cash money business. I'll leave it to you guys to figure out how that works, right? I mean, so there's all these opportunities with plant propagation that allow you to, yeah, do some of your own propagation, make money, but also to flip some stuff and to start thinking in that multidimensional mentality with any business. Uh, we also have decided there's a lot of things we can live without, but irrigation is not one of them here in the South, especially during um, establishment. We had way too many losses and way too many trees that made it, but made it under stress. So what we've decided now is if we're going to plant stuff, Irrigation goes in first everywhere. And if we have to take longer to get stuff in the ground, but we have a higher survivability rate, fine. Um, it is not just the climate here. It is hot as blazes here in the summer. There's no doubt about that. And we do have like this, this, this period with very little rain. But the reality is it's the, it's the soil type here. How much, you know, water can, you know, four inches of dirt sitting on top of limestone really hold before trees are able to get in there with aggressive tap roots and break the limestone and get down into the limestone? And the answer is not that much. So as we build soil, as we build mulch layers, as we build all of this stuff up, we, we get into a point where the, the plants become more and more resilient and as they become more and more established, because there's trees here that have been here for 50 years. Nobody waters them and they're just fine. 
But they were the toughest of the tough that got through the first initial survival rate. And let's face it, this land wasn't managed very well. The land I live on was range cattle land that back in the 70s was turned into like a big sprawling subdivision type rural thing where people have an acre, three acres, my another neighbor has 10, neighbor down the road has 20, another neighbor down the road has an acre and a half, guy behind me has six, that type of a subdivision. So this was all rangeland that was parted out, and it was managed as cattle land, and it wasn't paddock shift, Allen Savory style, permaculture managed. It was just graze it, then graze it, and graze it, and graze it. And when the guy that was running cattle on it grazed it to the point where he couldn't make money on it anymore, he sold it off as real estate. So that defoliated a lot of it. That overgrazed a lot of it. And then the guy that built this house didn't do horrible things, but he didn't really do anything right. And then the people that owned it before me were goat people, and they just overgrazed the crap out of it with goats. I mean, there wasn't a leaf to be found in, in the, the western acre when I moved in. It was dirt. It was a little bit of green here, a little bit of green there. My back fence line, it's all low grass, but it's grass now, was, was, was white, broken up, gravel, and, and, and caliche. And when I told the guy behind me that's been here since uh, 1970 that I was going to grow something there, he said, don't bother, there's never been a leaf there. I've been here since 1970, this was 2013. He said, there's never been anything there grow, ever. And I remember it was about six months later that he was standing over the fence looking down, talking to me and having a beer with me. And he just looked down at the ground and he shook his head. He says, I don't get it. And, you know, I said, well, it's the power of chicken shit. <laughs> That's really what it was. It's chickens and geese that did that. So we're making that progress, but it just goes a lot faster if the plants have good water. So everywhere that we're doing something... We're bringing water to. Now we have a limitation. We can't just put in three acres of irrigation, turn a well on, and water everything. That would be great if we could. But So we have to put everything out in zones, and everything takes a long time. Everything has to be dug by hand and what have you, rock chipped out with freaking pickaxes, but it's worth it to us. And it, it's pretty awesome what's beginning to happen here. Um, another few things that we're, we're talking about doing is some shorter-duration workshops. We're thinking about running some weekend-type stuff, like just like Saturday afternoon for four hours, come out, learn how to propagate plant cuttings and see the ducks and pet the geese and what have you and have lunch and $25, $50. We're also thinking about maybe, and this may happen this spring because I am way overtaxed time-wise this year, uh, we might, instead of doing like our, our three-day workshops, And, you know, have, to do a three-day workshop, I have to charge $500 a person. Um, one, it makes me enough money that I'm not going to get a divorce, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, and two, it is expensive to run a workshop like that. But, but it also takes a group of you guys that just goes, I understand, but I can't afford the time and I can't afford the money. So what we're thinking is maybe we could do some workshops that work more like this. Show up Friday afternoon. We'll throw brats on the grill like we always do. Have a campfire, drink beer. You don't even have to come Friday if you don't want to. Have a workshop all day Saturday. Have, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner Saturday. Uh, Saturday night, have people hang out, camp, do whatever you want, drink beer, have a barter blanket, etc. 
go home Sunday morning. If I do that, I could probably charge like 200 bucks. You know, maybe I can do 150 and 200 for couples when people come together as a couple to cover the couple, the, you know, the other partner's uh, food requirement. A lot less stress on me, a lot less stress on the animals, a lot less stress on my wife. Easier, more affordable. It it would reduce the number of people that would do things like come in from you know Kentucky or Pennsylvania or California, and we're still going to do the multi-day stuff. But it might also increase the number of people that can afford to come and have the time to come. Because if you're anywhere close to local, you could drive in Saturday morning. And I think it's a fair price, and we can do a, a, a lot of it. You know, The only downside, <laughs> rain, right? If it happens to rain us out, it could be a problem. But if we time things and we set things with enough um, hands-on coupled with classroom time, we should be able to make it through most days. It, it seldom rains 8 o'clock in the morning to you know 7 o'clock at night here. That's not typical of this place, no matter what. It happens, but it's not typical. So that's something else we're kicking around as a way to broaden our educational outreach. And honestly, I want to do more of my educational programs through Permit Ethos now because I just feel like I have an obligation to the company and the partners there to do so. And frankly, we have some facilities that will be available soon that will be pretty amazing. So uh, that's just another thing we're thinking of. Uh, next up is we have now, I've, I've talked about an experimental cider orchard. A place where I could grow like 50 different traditional cider apples and do bricks readings and acidity readings and all and, and develop a list of the true cider apples. Not making a freaking hard cider out of golden freaking delicious, but actually using, you know, things like Bramley's. Right and, and, and other uh, golden hornet crabs and and these other cider apples that are like your traditional cider apple. And this is an interesting thing. I'll put this out today. I'm not done with it yet, but right now I have gone through some of the best known old cider apples, and and I've made uh, probably the most extensive list that I've seen of cider apples broken down into their classifications of bitter sharp, bitter sweet, sharp, and sweet. And there's different ways that ciders are blended. France uses a sixth different classification. But the traditional English hard ciders were based on blends of these four types of apples. And these are not apples that you would generally pick up and eat. Again, these are not your Macintosh, your Red Delicious. These are things like Golden Hornet and Crow Egg and Fox Whelp and Brown Snout and um, Coat Jersey, Red Jersey, uh, White Jersey, Yarlington Mill, uh, Baldwin, Bramlin, uh, Ross Nonpareil, uh, Wagner, Rhode Island Greenling, Ribston Pippin. This, these are the things I've been doing all this research to classify on. And I found suppliers of this stuff. And my thought was, well, I could put in this, you know, orchard, uh, block thing and you know but then i gotta worry about the birds and this is like this is like research this is not something like you know if the goose chews a, a couple branches off one of my trees i got lots of trees it's not that huge a deal but like i want this protected so when i looked at this new paddock system and i realized okay that that chicken house becomes the goose house the chicken yard as we've called it up to now which is about a tenth of an acre is fenced in it's got its own gate 
and it can be completely sealed off with nothing done except not opening the back door of the house, uh, the goose house, the, the duck house now, chicken house now, but duck house to be. Just don't open that door. That's all you have to do, and you can completely close it off. And once the trees are up and you want to range the ducks through there, you can let the ducks in. And the geese can be let out one direction from their holding area, and the ducks could be put in there for a day to clean it up or to deal with pest infestations and then remove from there. And the geese, which do the hard damage, just never need to even know they can get in there. And when the trees are up high enough, well, then maybe we let them in there. And there's enough room in there to easily put in a 100 cider apple trees. Very close, intensely managed, but again, we need water, but I have to bring water right to that spot anyway. So then all I have to do is put in, I could even do it above ground. I could go in there and use what's called brown pipe, which are UV-stabilized uh, PVC. I can lay it all on top of the ground in the rows, because they're going to go in straight rows like it, like an orchard, and drill one-eighth inch holes wherever there's going to be a tree, and set that into the zones, whatever number of zones I need, and just drip irrigate. And be good to go. I probably won't. I'll probably put it in the ground. But get this. What's been living in there for two years? Chickens. That ground is so de-weeded. The weed seeds have been just tore out of it. So what are we doing now? We're pitching bales of straw in there. And those chickens are just shredding and incorporating that straw in their manure. And by the time they've done their duty and they go away, that place will just be gorgeous and even with the rock and all the apples do fine they can deal with alkalinity they can get into those soils the, the supplier that i'm gonna get most of my stock from is cuffle creek he puts that everything on m111 rootstock so it's a big thick tough aggressive rootstock we can go in there and interplant interplant some legumes which most people wouldn't do uh when i say interplant legumes i mean legume trees like locust and what have you to help break up that rock and because the chickens have built it up enough Digging it to put piping in won't be a big deal because the ground is loose, friable, easy to work with, even where it's shallow. So that just becomes a fenced-in apple orchard with great southern exposure. And that all happened all by itself. You just like It was always there, we just didn't see it. So that will give us another dynamic because what it will allow us to do is to take the nursery business and instead of trying to be a nursery business that does all things, but it allows us to start specializing into a product that can be sold to larger scale producers with information that they need. In other words, you don't have to plant 50 cider varieties. Here's four bitter sweets, here's four bitter sharps, here's, here's, here's four sweets, you know, etc. That, that will do well in our climate type. You know, here's two sharps to go with that list. And then this makes a great cider blend. You know, and here's the list of all the, the ones that worked out for us. That, that we got the readings we were looking for. And, and, and now you have what you call a value added product without doing something like making relish out of cucumbers. Because once the works, you see, so this is a different type of value add. So once I have the knowledge that these are your, your, your 15 apple types that make sense to grow apples for real cider in the South. It's a very small niche, but how many people have that information? 
And then you become the source for that product with your... It doesn't matter if there's 200 other people doing that. That's a mouse fart in the totality of a, of a growth market. The, the cider craft industry is having a growth spurt that, 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 that is very similar and very akin to the microbrew boom, the revolution happened. The 90s and early 2000s, microbrews became just huge, and they didn't go away. You don't see as many new ones coming out anymore, but the ones that are there, the ones that survive, they're, they're, you know, they have companies they're buying from that they're not stopping that, that order process from. And the only reason the cider boom's taking longer is there's no product. If you want to go in the cider business today and you're like, I want real cider apples. I don't want Dorset Golden. I don't, I want freaking cider apples. Good luck, baby. And this country used to, 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 that was the primary drink. Your founding fathers like Sam Adams and whatnot, when they were getting drunk in a pub and discussing throwing the King of England's ass out, and we always have this, this concept of beer, the, the drink of choice up to prohibition. There was a lot of beer in this country. I won't say there wasn't, but it was cider. Sam Adams owned a cider house. Right? So they were called. So there's a long tradition of that drink in America, and they were made from all of the apples that weren't good enough to eat out of hand, and there were orchards all over this country. When people moved to a new homestead and they said, okay, this is going to be a nice field, we'll just plant a shitload of apple seeds there, and hopefully some of them will be worth eating, some will be worth making pies, some of them will be worth making apple butter and sauce and stuff like that, uh, and some of them will be sweet enough that we can use them as a sugar substitute, but most of them are going to be cider and vinegar. And because of that, millions, Johnny Appleseed was a mouse fart in this, okay? Millions and millions of apple trees. And uh, so many of the apples, heirlooms, and, the, and stuff that's still around today in, in, in the mainstream came from that period of time. Well, we can go back now and figure out, well, what of this stuff works in this climate? Cuffle Creek's done that with dessert apples like crazy. I'm just replicating that. But you might think, okay, well, that's like one narrow niche that you can do with something like this. It's not. Okay, so last year at Permaculture Voices, I don't know who told me about it, but there was a person that was saying, you know, how much land do you need, not only to run a business, but to create salaries. And there's one company that pretty much employs 12 people, and I think eight of the 12 are full-time and four are part-time, on four acres. And what do they produce? Roses. It's a rose farm. They produce roses for the cut flower industry. And I was talking to somebody about it out there, and they said, well, that's not really permaculture. And I said, well, how do you mean? And they said, well, you know, it's not something you eat. It's not food. Well, it's a perennial product that meets a demand, and they're farming it in an ethical way, and they're not using toxins and poisons. And they cut the flower, and they ship the flower, and the flower grows back. And it's, it, it's employing people. It's doing no harm to the earth, and it's providing for people's needs. It's as permaculture as it gets. It doesn't have to be food. But then, you know, I was thinking about that, and I just, that was all I had to say at the time. You know, we were just shooting the shit and drinking a beer. I'm walking around my, my property today, and I'm thinking about this one fence where I'm thinking about putting Rosa Ragusa in, which is a, a, a cottage rose that grows these big, beautiful hips. But they're not the kind of rose that you think of as a cutting flower. And I think, why can't you have a rose that produces a high quality cutting flower? And a high quality hip. And in Mark Shepard's words, if you can go to Walmart 
and find a product on a shelf, it is a mainstream product. It is not just a niche vertical. So if you go there, you'll find rose hips being sold. So there's a market for that mainstream rose hips in mass quantities. But there's also, you know, lots of companies out there like Western Botanicals, one of our sponsors that sources all types of naturally or organically grown wildcrafted product for use in health product. So if you built that, it would be a greater incentive for people in the cut flower industry to farm organically because it's hard enough to get somebody to buy something at a premium because it's organic when they're eating it. But for a cut flower, do you really care if they use fertilizer or pesticide? If you care about the planet, you do. But otherwise, you know, I don't know put it in a vase. It's there for a few days. dies. Go on my life. But if the, if, the, if the producer can now sell the hip at a premium, and if we can develop plants to interplant in that type of an operation. Like let's say another perennial that has a dual use lavender. Because the premium flower could be sold off with the roses through the same distribution channel. And the stuff that's premium quality but doesn't necessarily have the aesthetics could be sold off for lavender oil and other lavender soaps and other things like that. So the nurseryman now can start to develop the varieties that meet all of these individual needs. We can't do it all, but I like to talk about it because, you know, we do this hopefully so that other people will do more than us. This is a small part of our business, but for some people we know this will be their business. And, and, and I want to make huge erosion on conventional thinking. Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. So I haven't even read it yet today, but somebody sent me a boohoo email. Uh, not really a boohoo email, a boohoo article from somebody in California saying how tough it is to make a living organically farming. Well, if you suck at it, you're right. I mean, <laughs> there's people that make a fortune ranching conventionally, and there's a people that make a fortune ranching organically. And there's people that go broke doing it conventionally as well. So that, that's about being good at running a business. But what we're, we're hoping is that more and more people will learn to do these things profitably. Because what I've heard from some people in the permaculture world is the reason permaculture isn't going far enough is because all you people charge too much money. Well, no. No. Every industry that's successful has lots of money flowing through it. That's what makes it a success. That's what makes people say, I want this for a career. I want this to be part of my life. That's what makes it viable to invest your time, your talent, your educational timeline. All You have to be able to make a living with something for it to ever be anything more than a hobby. And you're not going to change the world with a hobby. It can start that way, but it's got to turn into something more. So we do this to inspire others. So we're pretty excited about some of this stuff. Again, we've started to sell off the chickens. And... You know, I might have to take a step back. The more I look at this, the more I think, you know what, by the time these young ducks are ready to be integrated into the flock, it would be great if all those chickens were just gone. They're just gone. Just not here anymore. And they could just move the ducks in there, and everybody gets used to the new digs together, and we have to hold them in there for a while. And what we'll do, we'll just paddock them in the east, uh, in the east pasture. So there's no way to get back to where they've been going uh, after maybe one day of holding them in to teach them, this is your new home. And, and I might have to do that. And on that note, 
If there is someone here that wants chickens for their property, that would like to give an old man a home, I'd very much not like to kill my buddy Upgrade. Uh, so I am going to be willing as we thin these chickens out. Right now I want him, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, but I would give him to somebody that could come get him. Uh, flat out, I really, I, I saved this guy because my wife figured out he was trapped underneath the chicken coop. He was a rooster that wasn't supposed to be a rooster. He was a hen. The other roosters from the Faomis were picking on him. All those roosters are dead. I dug him out from under the coop, figured out he was a rooster. He became my buddy. This is a chill, cool rooster with one-and-a-half-inch-long spurs that's never drawn a drop of blood from me. I can pick him up. He gets irritated because I'm in, you know, embarrassing him in front of his girls and all, but he's a good dude. He's my buddy. I will put him in the crock pot if I have to. I will take responsibility for him, but if you want a rooster... They'll look out for your girls. I would rehome upgrade to you. And a rooster, roosters are not like hens where, you know, since they stop laying eggs, they're no longer that useful to you. This guy will give you years of service, and he's very prolific. If you want to be able to produce fertile eggs, he's good at it. Um, but the reason I want him, and all the other roosters do pretty good at this, but this guy protects these ladies. Um, yesterday, not yesterday, day before yesterday, we had a Cooper's hawk landing in a tree behind the house. God, I wish we'd have had the, the camera with us. That bird went absolutely spastic, nuts, started running around, puffing up, screaming and yelling, and all of the other uh, chickens ran into the ch chicken house. And that hawk was sitting in that tree like, I don't know about this. You know, it gave them cover. That's a good reason to keep roosters with your chickens if you're going to keep chickens. So if anybody would like to give old Upgrade a home, I'd prefer not to stockpot him. But if it comes down to it, You know, that he is a chicken, like any other chicken, but he's my buddy, too. Um, next up, Buddy and Joe are nesting. Buddy's laid, I think, four eggs at this point. We've left two out there marked, and we'll keep taking her eggs now, except for the marked ones, to encourage her to brood uh, in, until she starts brooding. And then we'll let her brood out a, another group, and hopefully we'll get uh, some more geese, and we'll cull out some meat geese, and we'll have a good meat yield out of that, uh, and we'll end up with defined pairs going forward. Uh, we do know we have at least one other pair. We didn't lose number five because, well, I saw two geese doing what two male geese don't do together um, from that other group. So we have at least two solid pairs. As we uh, are able to f you know, kind of find out the, the pair thing, we'll make sure everybody's banded. So when we cull, none of the, none of the positive pairs will be uh, culled out. So the geese are probably going to stick around, and it's a direct result of the paddocking system that we're developing because I know I'll be able to control them in such a way that I can mitigate their damage to things that, well, they're screwing up just out of the fact that they get spiteful and mean uh, once in a while. We're also starting to think about how we can do things for children's groups, church groups, and school programs, and we've decided we absolutely do not want that to be a profit center. We don't want to charge anything for it at all. If we provide any kind of food or something like that, then we would do that at cost. We probably would not even want to do that. It takes on too much liability, but we are trying to figure out, like, how do we set this up so that if, if, if somebody pulled up here with a church van with uh, 20 kids from a youth group and we said, okay, guys, we're going to walk you through the property, what would that look like? Because they're probably not going to want to come for a day-long workshop on permaculture design. This is more of just, like... A very universal thing. And we think we're close to that because this is going to be the transformational year. All of the trees, all of the work, all of the investment, you can just see it now. 
You could just see these trees starting to get, even in February, the little buds starting to come out and all. And we just know what this year is going to look like. This property is going to really look different this year than it has for the past, past two years. So it's time where we can start actually using that to influence people. Because it's not just you guys I want to influence. I want the local community. I want kids going home going, Daddy, we went to a place, we saw chickens, we saw geese, we saw... Well, no, no chickens, right? Ducks and geese and there were flowers and I ate an apple off a tree. And can we plant an apple? You want to get trees planted, get kids going home doing that shit. Can we plant an apple? I ate an apple. That was so good. It was so much better than the apples. Yeah, I want an apple tree, right? I mean, that's how we get people replacing, you know, ornamental trees with fruit trees in suburbia. We get kids going home doing that. And, and, you know, I know we can do that too. It's how we can get churches to say, hey, could you know, we got this great big field that we pay a guy to mow every day. We were going to put in a community garden. How about you show us how to do this? Because there's a lot of food here that we could be feeding people with. And that's where I go, you know, I don't do that, but let me introduce you to somebody that does. Right? I mean, this is the type of effect that we want to have. And so I think that if we can get more people doing this, we can move a lot faster. You know, I, I see people with different schools of thought in permaculture. I see people like Mark Shepard that's like, yeah, 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 we should permaculture every backyard, but look at the size of a supermarket. That's one supermarket. There's millions of those. That's how big the food industry is. If we're not, if we're not transforming 1,500-acre farms in the Midwest, we're not making a mouse fart of a dent. And we have to do that, and I think he's right. And then I see people like Dave Jackie with these really intellectual books And all these different plant types, edible forest gardens, and the work he did with Eric Tosemeyer, and basically selling uh, backyard design to yuppies is really, I mean, Dave's not a yuppie, but that's who, that's who pays for that level of design in the suburbs is yuppies. And I'm like, we need that, you know? And, and then you've got people like, uh, Peter Bain and uh, Toby Hemingway, that uh, their market's more, you know, they'll do the workshops, they'll do the design, it's more about education and selling books and, and like, this is what you can do in your backyard for yourself. And the, the dead broke ass person that can scrape up enough money to buy a $20 book and follow instructions and, you know, figure out how to propagate things and bum some of this and, and do that can, can end up transforming their backyard, you know, anywhere. And then we've got people like the urban farming guys that are like, the hell with this, we're going to go in and change a whole neighborhood in the middle of the ghetto and make it not the ghetto anymore. We're going to get donor money and buy a $30,000 makerspace and redo the whole thing and put in mentor programs and teach kids. And we need that. We need that too. And we got people that are like, you know what? All I want to do is put 15 trees on my property and produce some of my own food and find local producers to buy from. And we need that. And we got people that say, you know, all I want to do is there's like these two trees on my property that don't do anything for me. I want to cut those down, stick those in, throw a couple bushes underneath them, and turn the automatic sprinkler on and go back to my daily freaking life. But I want something productive. We need that too. And we need people to produce the plants for that. We need people that are small producers, big producers, large producers, everything. We need the guys that are out there producing honey. We need the guys that are out there selling that honey to people that are producing mead. We need, I mean, we need all of this if we're going to actually make a difference. It has to be a multi-front attack. You have to have like your infantry or guys like, you know, Mark Shepard that are going straight into the middle of the heartland going, burn the corn down and plant chestnuts. 
It'll take a while, but you'll have more money long term. And your input costs will go to shit. Oh, by the way, you can grow your corn in the middle of these chestnuts until they start to produce for you. Chestnuts and apples and plums and, and just go. Right. And, and, and trying to take on it saying, you know, you're already you're already in debt. Go in debt for something that lasts. <laughs> We need people that are like like Jeff Lawton that are like, let's go do relief work and let's teach orphanages how to do this. We need all of this. And, and, and to me, that's what this is about for me It is demonstrating that you can you can play whatever part you want in this. and You can have a lot of fun doing it. and You can make some money along the way. Because I believe that making money has gotten a bad rap. Because money is nothing but value. Money is nothing but a symbol for energy. And when you create value, you, you end up with a profit. And that means that if you're doing something, and you're working really hard at it, and it doesn't make money, you're either not marketing it to the right person to appreciate it, or what you're doing doesn't create value. And if it doesn't create value, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. So you either have to find people that value what you do or find something of more value to do with your time. And I think creating new types of, of food is incredibly valuable. I think going back and finding the old things that, that we lost and bringing them back is of value. I think all of this stuff is of incredible value. And our biggest goal is still to inspire others to do more than we are. You know, I, I want people to come look at Nine Mile Farm and go, that's nice. That's nice. Look at my 80 acres that we modeled on this. You know, look at my 80 acres that we're employing six people with. And when I see that, I want to be like, oh, hell yeah. Good for you. And let me tell you something that I need to say about this community right now, this community of TSP. Every once in a while, we get what my buddy Neil from, from England would call a wanker, right? We get somebody that's bitter and angry that other people are successful. But in general, do you know what we get when we have someone start a business out of this community? You know what the rest of the community says? Oh, good for them. That's why there's going to be so much prosperity in the TSP community over the years. I'll tell you a story right now about people that, that I, I don't really know well, but I know of them, I know their names, so my wife worked with them for years, and I know none of them really still have anything. And it's a mentality that they're locked into that will prevent them from ever being successful at all, period, when it comes to acquiring wealth and acquiring happiness through a lifestyle that's what they want. So my wife goes into work one day, And all of the girls she works with at the medical office she used to work at go down to the cafeteria and spend five, seven, eight bucks on garbage food. Okay? Nobody brings their, their lunch to work. It's, no, you don't do that. You don't have time, whatever the excuse is. And they all make about the same amount of money. A dollar here, a dollar there in difference between all the girls in the office. So, the night before I cooked this big, beautiful steak dinner on the grill and, uh, Uh, a side of broccoli and a little bit of grilled potato and, and stuff like that. And I, you know, we eat and we have this leftover food. So we have this nice piece of sirloin, you know, maybe five, six ounce sirloin, medium rare, uh, and a little bit of potatoes and stuff like that. And so Dorothy takes it and puts it in a Tupperware and takes it to work. Now you might be thinking what they would say is, I can't believe you bring your work, your, your lunch to work or whatever. No, that would, That would actually be less bad than what I'm about to tell you. They look at this, these girls she works with, and they go, 
wow, Jack must be doing really good for you to be able to eat like that. Like, they're jealous of it. Now, this is like, you know, a six-ounce piece of sirloin. I don't know what we were paying for meat at the time back when she was still working, but I can tell you this. There was less money sitting there. And that nice piece of sirloin, a little bit of, of roasted potatoes, and, and a little bit of whatever else was left over, and her little salad that she made for herself that morning and took to work, then was in their, you know, garbage cafeteria food that they paid, you know, seven bucks for. It cost less, but it bothered them that somebody else ate steak. This is the mentality in place in most of America. When other people have more than you, or better than you, or different than you, you don't have it because they do. This is the central wedge used to control society through class warfare in America today. The, the, the biggest advantage that I see in the, the TSP community, with a few wanker exceptions, is you guys become, through your interactions with each other, and through your opening of minds, and through your sharing of information, and you're helping each other immune to it. It's yet another TSP vaccine. We have a vaccination against bullshit, and I think we have a pretty good vaccination against envy. If you want to be successful, you need to think that the people that are doing what you want to do are cool. You need to think good for them. That's great. You can't live in a world where you resent the wealthy and hope to become wealthy. I know this is really off topic at the end of today's show, but it's the truth, and it's where today's show led me, so I'm going to share it with you. So many people in the world want to be wealthy, but every time they look at somebody that's wealthy, they think, greedy, stole it, knew somebody, must be nice, etc. So they despise the very thing they're trying to become. So it's no doubt that subconsciously they'll find a way to prevent themselves from getting there. Plus, not only will there be this subconscious sabotage, since they, they look at it with negativity, they can't accept how did that person get there? What is the ethics? What are the dynamics required to become successful? To design a lifestyle that way? To design a business that way? To design an agricultural pursuit that way? To design your education that way? Whatever it is. Since they are negative toward the individual, they can't accept what the individual did to actually get there because it then places the onus and the burden upon them to emulate that behavior. And they're bitter and they'll never have it because they can't learn They can't accept, and even when they get close, they'll sabotage themselves. I think that 99% of the people that are part of this community are immune to that behavior. And, and the way you know is when you see somebody really, really hit a home run with something, and instead of being like, huh, it must be nice, you're like, that's so awesome for them. That is the attitude to stick with. That is the attitude to stick with. That doesn't mean if you just have that attitude, good things will happen. That's that's law of attraction bullshit. Let me give you here at the end of today's show the real law of attraction. The law of attraction is very, very real. But the reason it's real is because opportunities to have what you want come into your life all the time. When you are attuned to the law of attraction... It isn't that things occur that wouldn't have otherwise. 
It's when they do, you recognize them, you're ready for them, and you capitalize on them through intelligence and hard work. That's the real law of attraction. Believing that your business will grow if you're in a growth mode of a business, means that when the opportunity to grow your business is in front of you, instead of just kind of glossing over, yeah, I'll get back to that, you go, oh, there it is. That's what. That's it. That's the thing I need. And, and it's also the case that since you're expecting it to be useful, that the minute you determine it's not useful, that's not what I thought it is. Let me get it the hell out of my way. I'm not being effective pursuing this. I'm going to change course. That's the law of attraction, guys. And I'll tell you, it's it's the story of Nine Mile Farmstead becoming a success so quickly. When we recognized the opportunity, we changed course. We said, "This is what we're going to do." And now that we have it all worked out, we're gonna we're gonna build it off of that success. I know that a ton of you guys out there are going to do that too. You guys are going to crush it. You really are. Because you have the right mindset, the right motivation, and the right goals. And I think the one more thing that we really need in this country for people to begin, the, the, what I'm calling the return to entrepreneurship. hundred years ago, most people in this country were entrepreneurs at least a little bit. We've lost that. We've been sold a lie that somebody else should look after you. People need to be optimistic enough to believe in themselves and to be happy for others when they have success and disgusted enough with things not being good enough for them and for their family and for their communities that they're willing to take the optimism and channel it into aggression in a positive way and say, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go take this. I'm going to go make this happen. We're doing it, and we're doing it because we want to demonstrate to emulate. We want you guys to know that it's possible, and we want you to do more than us. With that... This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living